Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. Thematically, Seekers and Scholars lives at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry, exploring how the interaction of these pursuits can lead to a deeper and more expansive understanding of our world. In some cases, they become a distinctive feature of a family's identity and values. Today, we're going to discuss one such family, in particular women in a branch of the Matsukata family, a family with distinctive ties to two countries and cultures, those of Japan and the United States. During the 20th century, world events would challenge, stretch, and strengthen those ties within this family. What emerged from these experiences were women who demonstrated a unique capacity for global citizenship, bringing healing and renewal during and in the aftermath of conflict, while contributing to a new enlightenment for international understanding and cooperation. So I'm so pleased to have with me today a wonderful gathering of guest speakers to discuss the lives of Mio Matsukata and Haru Matsukata Raishauer as well as some other members of this distinguished family. So, I'm so pleased to have with me Sarah Sheldy. Sarah is an archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. She wrote an article on Mio Matsukata that appears on the library's website. This article is part of the library's Women of History series. So, hello there, Sarah. It's great to have you with us. Happy to be here, Jonathan. <laughs> it's always wonderful to work with you. And also with us is Dr. Carol Gluck. Carol is George Sansom Professor of History at Columbia University. She specializes in the history of modern Japan, international history, and public memory. Among her books are Japan's Modern Myths, Ideology in the Late Meiji Period, Words in Motion, Toward a Global Lexicon, and she has a forthcoming work, Past Obsessions, World War II in History, and memory. Carol is former president of the Association for Asian Studies, and she's a founding member and now chair of Columbia's Committee on Global Thought. So it's wonderful to have you with us. Hello there, Carol. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you, Jonathan. Our great pleasure to, to be able to have you as part of this conversation. And we're also so pleased to have with us Mimi Oka. Mimi's family has been associated with the Matsukata family for many generations. In fact, her family was introduced to Christian science in Japan by Mio Matsukata, and this friendship has only deepened over the years. Mimi graduated from Harvard with a Bachelor of Arts in Government, and during her undergraduate years, Haru Matsukata Reischauer's home was a real haven. Mimi has worked as an investment banker, writer, artist, and cook, and she is now a Christian science practitioner and teacher. Welcome, Mimi. Thank you. So good to be here. It's great to have you. I thought maybe we could start with you, Sarah. Just love to hear about Mia Matsukata. Also, uh, how you got involved in writing about Mia Matsukata. I was assigned to write a article for the Mary Baker Eddy Library website for the month of May in 2019. And I looked up and realized that was Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And oh, okay. so I decided to kind of look into the history of Christian science in Asia. And I found um, Emmy Abigo's book, 
a precious legacy, Christian science comes to Japan. And I decided to write about Miyu Matsukata because I found her American Japanese heritage and the bridge between those countries really fascinating in her history. So Miyu Matsukata was born in 1891 in New York City to Japanese parents. And her father was a businessman who helped introduce the Japanese silk industry to America. Her childhood was punctuated by summers spent with her grandparents in Japan, and at 21, she married Shokumu Matsukata and moved there. Despite her heritage, she felt isolated and found it difficult to adapt to Japanese traditions. Her health was affected, and she found healing by accompanying a friend to a 1917 Christian science lecture in Yokohama. She became, with two other women, one of the first Japanese Christian scientists and helped establish services as well as a Sunday school where an American teacher, Florence Boyan, taught English and Christian science to a number of children, including Matsukadas. She helped to establish bridges between Japanese Christian scientists and Americans, including through the Principia schools in the American Midwest. During World War II, Matsukata helped secretly continue Christian science services when it was forbidden by the government. And post-war, she helped establish First Church of Christ Scientists Tokyo and continued to be highly involved as a church member and Christian science practitioner until her passing in 1984. Sarah, that's fascinating what you had to say. And I'd love to bring you in, Carol. Can you give us a sense of the significance of Mio Matsukata's background within Japanese society? Well, if you understand the two sides of Mio Matsukata's family, her father's side and her mother's side, you pretty much understand how modern Japan came into being. Mm. And the reason is that the name Matsukata is always associated in modern Japan with one of the great statesmen of the Meiji period, and the Meiji period is Japan's modern period. It began in 1868, lasted to 1912. And Matsukata was a finance minister during the most important and difficult decades in the 1880s uh, and 90s. Then he was prime minister twice in the 1890s. And then he was one of the elder statesmen, very, very important in Japanese politics, and rather on the more enlightened side, including taking some enlightened views about Japan's aggressive relationship with China. So Matsukata is an example of the new Japanese elite. He comes from a samurai family, but he's thrust into prominence at a relatively young age, in his 30s really, in government. Uh, And then he remains there. He remains in the highest echelons of Japanese leadership. Now, Arai, on the other side, he represents not a a samurai family, but a very wealthy peasant commoner family. He was actually adopted into this family. So he comes from an elite, but it's a local commoner elite. He studied English, I should say, uh, when he was a boy. And at the age of 20, he was chosen because he had already been engaged in silk. He was chosen to go on something that became known as the the Oceanic Group, this group of five people in business sent to America, and they were each in a different trade, very carefully chosen. He was 20 years old when he arrived in the United States in 1876, and he remained there. And he became not only the 
founder, if you like, of the enormous U.S.-Japanese silk trade. Silk was Japan's largest export. It was one of America's important imports. And his companies across the decades dominated that trade. He became very well known in Japan as a successful businessman in the United States. He lived a very elite life among Japanese Americans in the East Coast with a large mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut. So here you have one enlightened statesman wanting to modernize Japan. He established, that's Matsukata, established the central bank, etc. And then you have one very entrepreneurial businessman who was engaged in international trade, which was the basis of Japan's economic growth. One from a samurai elite family, one's from a peasant elite family. And so uh, Mio Matsukata's families really explains a lot about modern Japanese history. So it strikes me that Mio Matsukata is coming out of a family of super high achievers. So I'm, I'm curious, Mimi, you've known this family for, for some time. Your family has been associated with the Matsukatas. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your knowledge of the family, and in particular, Haru Matsukata Reischauer, uh, daughter of Mio Matsukata. My grandmother was a friend of Mio Matsukata's and was introduced to Christian science by her. So it's been a longstanding friendship. And I got to know Haru Matsukata Reischauer when I came to college in the United States. I had been raised outside the U.S., um, and so... When I was coming to Boston, it was really my first time really uh, in the United States for any reasonable period of time. And she was just a wonderful presence for me during my time at Harvard because she really opened her home up. And what it gave me was a comfortable environment for me. I mean, it was a very Japanese-American household, just in terms of the way the furniture worked, the way the household was set up, and the way she and Ed ate. It was just a very familiar setup for me. And since everything else about life at Harvard was so unfamiliar, the fact that I had this sort of open invitation to be able to go to their home whenever I felt like it, any weekend I wanted. So I've just been hugely grateful to her for that. Well, Mimi, that's fascinating that you had that extraordinary opportunity to spend time at the Reischauer's home in Belmont, Massachusetts. Carol, could you give us a sense of the significance of the Reischauer Matsukata connection in terms of just the history of relations between Japan and the United States? Both Ambassador Reischauer and Haru Matsukata Reischauer were models or exemplary personages of a relationship between Japan and America, and both were unusual in that. Ambassador Reischauer grew up as a, the son of missionary parents in Japan, which meant he had an unusually deep understanding of Japan in addition to his own scholarly work as a historian of Japan. So when he was appointed ambassador in 1961 was when he went uh, under uh, President Kennedy, the Japanese had an American ambassador who really understood Japan. And Haru, uh, having grown up in Japan, but with uh, American education and then having gone to college in the United States, having lived most of her adult young life in the United States, she was also both Japanese and American. So when, when she became Madam Ambassador, she was actually fearful that the Japanese would not 
prefer to have a Japanese wife of an American ambassador. It turns out that they absolutely adored her. They responded to the fact, too, that she knew both Japan and America. So she was extremely popular. And so they were really an unusual pair, both of whom were, as they're always described, bridges across the Pacific, both of whom understood Japanese and American culture, both of whom respected both Japanese and American culture, and both of whom knew an awful lot about both. Yes, and Haro is is well known for her book, Samurai and Silk, uh, Japanese and American Heritage, uh, where she describes in in detail uh, these two extraordinary families uh, of which she um, was the product, the Arai family and the Matsukata family. Sarah, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the impact and influence of Mia Matsukata on her children? Well, Mia Matsukata was very interested in making sure that her children had this basis in English and then in Christian science, which they were able to get from the Sunday school that Florence Boyan helped set up and kind of operated outside of the Matsukata home. And I think that it really helped in part of international worldview on the Matsukata children. I think in particular for Haru Matsukata, she was in Japan during the war. Then after the war, she was introduced during the occupation period to the Christian Science Monitor staff that came to Japan in the occupation period, and she was able to create these relationships that would continue for her career and for the rest of her life. So that's really interesting, Sarah, to think of that first wave of journalists coming into Japan after Japan's surrender. Uh, The Christian Science Monitor journalists coming into the country would have brought with them that global perspective that had really become the signature of the Christian Science Monitor, a newspaper founded by Mary Baker Eddy with the intention of serving a public readership, uh, which quickly grew to become known for its global perspective. So it seems just so natural that uh, that, that would be a, a place for Haru Matsukata to express her gifts. Definitely, Jonathan, yeah. So Mimi, I'm just curious, your family with its longstanding association with the women of the Matsukata family, how was it for them to be in this position with these strong ties to these two different nations and cultures in the context of World War II? How did they handle that? How did they think about it? I I can speak to that because my father and Haru were the, the kids of that generation that were in Japan during the war. The other Matsukata kids were all at Principia in, in, in the States. So my father and Haru were very close because they just experienced the difficulty of, of being, you know, practicing Christian scientists in Japan with Japan and America as being very much a part of their lives and yet having these two countries that they loved be at war with each other. It was very difficult for them. And I think they really did have to turn to, turn to their faith to, to, get, to get them through that time. My father and Haru described it as being just a, a real testing time for, for them both. Mm. What were some of the lessons, do you think, that came out of that experience for your dad and just more, more generally speaking for the Matsukato family? 
my father had heard a testimony that Mie Matsukata, who was Haru's younger sister and was at Principia during the war, in which she said, I do not have to think American thoughts. I do not have to think Japanese thoughts. I have only to think God's thoughts. These words really struck my father because he realized that he didn't have to think of himself as a Japanese child or an American child, but that he was God's child. Sarah, how, how was it possible for Mia Matsukata and her network of Christian scientists, how was it possible for them during World War II to practice Christian science? Um, was it something they had to do underground? Yes, definitely. So the Japanese government cut off the ability to practice any kind of Christianity that wasn't a specific kind of state-sponsored Christianity, and Christian science was not a part of that. So early on in the war, they actually continued meeting secretly in the Matsukata home to have Christian science services. And for some time, they were cut off from receiving the Christian science publications, the journal and the Sentinel. After 1941 in Pearl Harbor, there was kind of a shutdown with mail and communications. So there was actually a really unique way that they were able to keep receiving Christian science publications. And that had to do with the fact that the Matsukata's neighbors were was a Swedish diplomat and they had connections to Swedish Christian scientists that were back in Sweden. So that was a neutral country. And so the Christian scientists in Sweden were able to receive these Christian science publications and they copied them out and sent them to the minister, um, Widerbag, who lived next door to the Matsukatas. And there was a sly way that they transferred the publications, which was the minister had these chickens and they would kind of go over to the fence of the Matsukata home and he would go to retrieve his chickens from Miyu Matsukata and flip her the publications that he had received And so that was a way for them to kind of keep in contact, despite the fact that they couldn't hear from their children that were studying at Principia. They couldn't receive letters and publications directly from First Church in Boston, but they were able to remain connected to Boston and their religion and their children in this way. Sarah and and Mimi, would you say that it was really the women of the Matsukata family at this point that really were the the leaders in sort of spiritually sustaining their family and their greater community of people who had both these Western and um, Japanese ties and these connections with Christian science? Yes, I mean, I, I would say that they were. Because I got to know them as, as a child and have now a, a deeper understanding of Mrs. Matsukata now, now that I have children of my own, I, I just think that she really took a stand for the education of her children in the context of this traditional Japanese society. And I do think that it was Christian science that enabled her to do that. It gave her the confidence. There's a passage in something that she wrote where she quotes a passage that Mary Baker Eddy writes in Science and Health, where she says, this is the quotation, citizens of the world, Accept the glorious liberty of the children of God and be free. This is your divine right. Mm. And I think that Mrs. Matsukata really inculcated that thinking into 
the education of her children and the way her family lived in Japan. And given the pressures of nationalist Japan at that time, it was not easy. <laughs> so she really did have to dig deep into her faith and her, her understanding of her relationship to God to be able to do that. That's wonderful. Um, and it makes me wonder about that experience of going through the challenge of World War II, whether that set them up in a unique way to be in positions of leadership, to be contributors to the development of a new Japan in the post-war period. I think above all, uh, it was their characters that set them up. Mm. Both Mio and her daughters, Haru and Tane, who founded this Nishimachi school, and Mie, the jeweler, etc. Their characters as women, as Japanese women, schooled and experienced in both cultures. I think that's what set them up because I think, frankly, it, the hardest part of being Haru Matsukata during the war was the awful position of anybody associated with America during the war. Mm -hmm. I mean, she wrote that it was the eight hardest years of her life. So I think that after the war, when all Japanese felt liberated from the war, uh, but people like Haru Matsukata, the people who knew both cultures, they were liberated into being their, their whole selves again. Mm -hmm. And that made them, because they were so admirable, that made them, in the context of a very warm attitude in general toward Americans among Japanese after World War II, that made them aspirational, not only leaders, but they were models, if you like. People could admire them precisely because they were an amalgam of both Japanese and American sort of values and experience. The liberation from war for Japanese was also for people like Haru Matsukata and others. It was a liberation to being themselves. And it was their character that they had, that had been honed by Christian science, by education, by a mother particularly, and, the, and her mother before her, to have women be persons in themselves. Now, there are limits to this in the sense that the older generations wanted their girls educated, but they also wanted them to be married. And so back in the day, and the day goes way back now to, to Haru's grandmother, there was no question that, that she would not go to college. She would be married. And then the same thing happened to Mio. She was in the United States. I mean, she's been living in, in Greenwich, Connecticut, but she attended a finishing school while her brother went to Yale. But after the war, that changed too. Mm. And so that, that enabled people like Haru to be a journalist and she did have a career and she was a writer, etc. So uh, the context changed and then they were really able to be leaders in that changed context. There were other important Matsukata women. Mimi, maybe you could give us a, a little bit of background on some of these other Matsukata women and their contributions. Sure. There were five girls and, and one son. The oldest was Naka, whom I did not know at all. But Mie Matsukata was a jeweler, and she really was at the forefront of jewelers that, that saw this jewelry as being wearable art. I mean, she saw her pieces as being sculptures in and of themselves. She didn't necessarily use precious stones. She, she made pieces out of, out of coins or or beach glass, or things that she picked up on her travels. And so just the idea of finding the beauty in, in every day was, was something that she really was a master at. And she just was constantly experimenting. Mm. And 
was was confident as an artist in her sense of just expressing a spiritual sense of of art and beauty through these pieces. Wow. Do you and, ever wear any Matsukata? Oh, yes, you, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Tane Matsukata was uh, another one of the sisters, and she founded, she was the only one that really made her life in Japan. I mean, mm-hmm. she went to Principia, she got a graduate degree at Columbia, went back to Japan, and established the Nishimachi International School. And her idea really was to teach Japanese children to become world citizens and to mm. teach the children of the international community in Japan to appreciate the culture and society of where they were living. I think she had that sense of Japan having been an insular nation for, for, for quite some time. And so she really wanted to create the bridge for that to end and, and for there to be this sense of a bridge between Japan and the U.S. And the school is flourishing now. It used to just go through the ninth grade, but now they're, they're planning to build a high school. So, so it's just a real testament to the legacy that Mrs. Mio Matsukata inculcated in them. And somebody reminded me of the fact, actually, that the property that the school is on is the family property. It's one acre of land in the heart of Tokyo. It's a tremendously valuable piece of property. And Mrs. Matsukata gave it to Tane for the school, but all of the children had to sign off on that. It really was a testament to the fact that every sibling was willing to have a school be established on their family property and and give up their own title to that, I think, was a real testament to the value they placed on the importance of this bilingual education. Yeah, that's wonderful to understand that about the Matsukata children and their wanting to have a, a generous legacy for others in that way. And then I should mention the youngest sister, who Mari Matsukata, who became Mari Brooke, who became a Christian science practitioner in Los Angeles and also a Christian science lecturer. And she lectured around the world for quite some time. Mimi, it, it leaves one with this image in mind of these four Matsukata women, daughters of Mia Matsukata, and the different ways that they expressed that enlightened formation that they got from their mom. In the case of Tane, in the world of education, in the case of Haru, uh, in the world of diplomacy, and then as an author and uh, journalist with uh, Mie, her very interesting work in, in the world of art through jewelry, and then with Mari as a Christian science lecturer and practitioner. And then, of course, there is an older daughter, Naka, who had her own life in the United States, much of which was spent at the Principia College, a college for Christian scientists in the United States. And lest we be too gender exclusive in this podcast episode, I very much would like to mention Mako Matsukata, the son of Mio Matsukata. He too had a very distinguished career, in his case, in the world of business in Japan. Well, I I just want to thank you all. It's been wonderful spending this time with you. It's a really very rich and multidimensional subject. So I don't think we've uh, even begun to do all the different aspects of this story, the justice they deserve. But uh, it's been a wonderful start. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Carol Gluck. 
Thank you very much. And thank everyone. I learned a lot from hearing what you all had to say. So I appreciated this. Yeah, and, and thank you so much, Mimi Oka. Thank you very much. No, this was just, this is great. <laughs> and thank you so much, Sarah Sheldy. Thank you so much, everyone, for just being involved in this conversation. Applause to you all and applause to the subject matter that's been so inspiring for us to delve into during our time together. And thank you also to our listeners for joining us for this Seekers and Scholars episode on women in the Matsukata family as we explore the enlightenment they brought to relations between Japan and the United States and to global citizenship overall. We'd love to hear from you about this episode or any of our other episodes, so please write to us at podcast at mbelibrary.org with your questions and observations. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that address is podcast at mbelibrary.org. And please join us for our next episode, when we will be discussing the life and accomplishments of Martha Matilda Harper. Harper rose from the status of domestic servant to become a titan and leader in the beauty industry. As an entrepreneur in the late 19th century and well into the 20th, she was a pioneer of the franchise model, whereby she empowered other women to become successful business owners. Our guest is Jane Plitt, author of Martha Matilda Harper and the American Dream, How One Woman Changed the Face of Modern Business. We'll discuss Harper's remarkable story and the spiritual principles that guided her life and her approach to business. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library, copyright 2020.